one week after the deadly violence in Charlottesville. It was a tense day of demonstrations in Boston. 40,000 people in the streets. Last I was aware, this is the Boston Common. The Boston Common is a hate-free spot. Do you understand that? Get out of Boston, you effing Nazi! Donald Trump needs to go! Fucking Nazi scum! Fuck you! Say what you want to say, you're right here, there's cameras, let's go! Pussy, you never got laid! Make it right. Pulled the clips you just heard from YouTube uploads, made in the days following the second Boston Free Speech Rally, a small gathering of free speech demonstrators which drew approximately 45,000 counter-protesters, mostly under the banner of the Fight Supremacy March on the Boston Commons. Sifting through YouTube rarely makes me feel particularly warm and fuzzy about American politics, but I think it's safe to say these excerpts reveal an ugly side to current American life. Now, this was several months ago. The march took place on August 19th. But you can remember how hot things were getting at this time. It was the dog days of summer, in the throes of Trump's first year, and in the wake of the tragedy in Charlottesville, Virginia. Walking around Boston, I would routinely overhear folks debating the issues of Confederate monuments in southern cities. I'm sure you can imagine the exchanges that were taking place on social media. It seemed like the issue of race was coming to a boil. I selected and edited those clips because I was struck by the anger that is simmering within them. I think the source of that anger comes from a feeling of not being heard, of sensing that the other side is not listening, does not care to listen, or is only hearing its own version cranked up to maximum volume. Folks on both sides of the political spectrum are guilty of this, of course. I get the feeling that the conversation has completely broken down. And that is what I find so ugly, so alarming. I'm your host, Dave Walker, and this is Empathy Reboot. I decided to start this podcast because I have felt that much of the coverage and conversations taking place about modern American life have lacked that crucial ingredient, listening. I have felt that many complex and nuanced human stories have slipped through the cracks when we construct our narratives on TV, in the newspapers, in our social feeds. 
We create a web of labels, categories, of data and analysis. But that web doesn't always capture the idiosyncrasies, the exceptions, the specificity of human experience. That is what I will attempt to do here. I won't usually address politics, but I thought this was an apt place to begin because within this sphere of life, perhaps more than any other, people have stopped listening. Our first story begins on August 19th in those roiling crowds of protesters that we heard at the beginning of the show. John Connolly went to the Commons that day to attend the free speech rally taking place at the Parkman Bandstand. He was blocked from entering the area by the crowds and video footage of him being escorted away from the area by police circulated online, eventually ending up on the Tucker Carlson show. In one sense, the clips show a victim of mob mentality, a moment of misidentification and displaced anger. And the way the video was disseminated afterwards definitely attempted to capitalize on this. In another sense, though, many of the counter-protesters were nobly fighting racism and hate, operating under the assumption that those attending the free speech rally were white supremacists. I wanted to peel back behind the layer of sensationalism and learn John's whole story. What spurred him to head to the commons that day? What kind of speech did he feel he was trying to protect? And I wanted to hear what it felt like to face such intense outrage. What, if anything, he will take away from that experience. But I also wanted to investigate how such a confrontation can unfold. The fight that the protest organizers are trying to wage, their strategies and vision for creating a broad social movement in the context of a Trump presidency. Later in the episode, you'll hear me address these questions with two activists who were principal organizers of the counter-demonstration. But first, we'll hear from John Connolly, who I met at his home in Framingham, Mass., one evening in September. A true libertarian, he sparked up a joint as I sat next to him on the edge of his bed. A Brazilian family held a party next door, the festive sounds audible through the closed window. A Kekistan flag, we'll hear more about what that is later, it's green, white, and black, hung above his Trump flag on the wall behind us. My name is John Connolly. I live in Framingham. I'm pretty much just a regular person. I'm a manager at a retail store. I just graduated from college, and I attended the free speech rally originally because I'm a constitutionalist at heart, and I wanted to advocate my First Amendment rights and we had one earlier uh, last May, and everything went off without a hitch. And then we went to get to have the second one, and Charlottesville happened, and then it got such a bad rap that it kind of turned into something it wasn't. You said the first free speech rally in May went off without a hitch. So what, is, what did a successful free speech rally look like in, in your estimation? The original free speech rally that occurred in May of 2017 when I said it went off without a hitch, what I meant was a lot of there were a lot of people gathered with signs and clothing and just general representatives of American values. And it was just a lot of people hanging out, exchanging ideas. And we had a couple speakers there. Then we were listening to essentially a couple monologues on their ideals and what they think is important for America. And it kind of turned into a small battle because we had a small group of Antifa protesters show up across the street 
but they weren't in great numbers. So essentially we just kind of started to troll them in a sense because we knew exactly what to say to get them angry. And of course, none of us are actually racist or anything, but they started yelling at us and calling us Nazis and it sort of just turned into us just bickering back with them and then it eventually dissipated. To my eyes, after having seen footage of that first rally in May, just hanging out seems to be a mild way to put it. The vast majority of the attendees were young white men, many wearing camo, flak jackets, and helmets, accented by your occasional Trump hats, keck flags, and signs referencing various alt-right memes like Pepe the Frog. In addition to the prevalence of combat attire, many seemed to equally relish skirmishes with Antifa earlier in the day. And at the end of his speech, Kyle Chapman, one of the keynote speakers, also known as the based stickman, yells out to the crowd, We are going to demoralize them. We are going to humiliate them. We are going to destroy them. Then the ralliers stage a kind of vague military reenactment where they storm up Flagstaff Hill, which is in the center of Boston Common, their flags waving. It seems playful enough, almost childlike in a way, but I thought about how different it could feel had Antifa still been in the way at that point. Another thing I noticed was that John seemed to carry himself as a leader within the gathering. From atop Flagstaff Hill, he led several chants through his bullhorn. We took the hill. Free Kekistan. Fuck CNN. And Blue Lives Matter. At one point, he cries out, We turned this into the trail of liberal tears. Some of these chants stuck more than others, but in the video footage, you can notice John's wit, his fluency with alt-right subculture, but also a sense of seriousness about the movement. For example, at the end of the rally, he reminded the other ralliers to thank the Boston Police Department and not to leave their trash like the Democrats, lest they turn their hill into Standing Rock. John initially came across the Boston Free Speech Coalition earlier in the year, on Facebook, a few months before their first rally. On its page, the group described itself as a, quote, coalition of libertarians, progressives, conservatives, and independents willing to peaceably engage in open dialogue about the threats to and importance of free speech and civil liberties. You would have to dig a little deeper to find the talk of the war on whites, the mistrust of multiculturalism, and the militancy that its speakers espouse, but on the surface, it seems like something most of us could get behind. What was your initial uh, impression of the group itself and the other members or the other people that were posting on the page? Like, how would you describe them? Did they have common interests with you, or did they seem like people that you felt like kind of simpatico with? In regards to the other people um, that were commenting on the page and the people that seemed to be engaged, um, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to them because it was more of something for myself. Like, I knew there would obviously be a group there, but if they shared the same values as me, then there wouldn't be so much to look at what they were commenting and saying. But in regards to that, people were just, yeah, they were just advocating for American rights as a whole. The right and people that are consider themselves libertarians or constitutionalists are really doubling down on their ideals because they see how Democrats and people center of left are moving farther and farther and farther left to the point where they're being becoming open Marxists. 
that want to shut down people's speech in in the guise of social justice but in doing so you just create more danger for people as a whole three months later john medlar a 23 year old man who had become the spokesman for the group planned a new rally on the boston common with an original lineup of speakers that included kyle chapman augustus invictus joe biggs and alex jones of infowars but when the violence broke out at the unite the right rally in charlottesville a weekend before Medlar attempted to distance the free speech rally from those events by disinviting Invictus and disavowing any platform for racism and bigotry. Meanwhile, activists on the left were beginning to mount their own response, framing their counter-protest as a denunciation of the free speech cause and its ties to hate speech. What originally I thought it would be was uh, essentially another gathering of the original rally that I went to, But I think because of what happened in Charlottesville when there were legitimate Nazis and KKK members and also that guy hitting that lady with his car, people, especially the media, were hysterical in saying and calling all these speeches either white supremacist or alt-right. And they eventually amassed roughly 35,000 people, I think it was. As you heard about the likelihood of large crowds on the other side, did that demotivate you at all did that make you think twice about showing up or did that make you more motivated to go it made me more motivated to go I didn't want to go there for a confrontation but the whole point of me going to any of this and the name of the group that put it on is the free speech coalition if you can't go there and advocate your free speech then it's getting suppressed but people have the right to assemble peacefully and say whatever they want, believe whatever religion they want. And that's the beauty of America. When you shut down free speech and you make things quote-unquote hate speech, it can lead you down a very bad path. Did you have butterflies in the morning? No, I wasn't ter- I mean, I wasn't scared. I wasn't terrified. I wasn't anything. I, if anything, I was kind of excited. I knew... I, I just wanted to go there and see what everything was going to turn into. And when I showed up there, I realized, because uh, we parked on Newberry Street and then we walked over to the to the common. Who were you with? I was This time I was just with one other friend that I work with. And um, we were already getting looks from the time we parked because he has a big truck with a Trump sticker on it. And I had an American flag on my back. I had a white t-shirt and just some regular like brown or black shorts. Were you wearing a hat? Yeah, I also had a Make America Great Again hat. And as we walked further and further down Newberry and we uh, were getting to the common, the crowd was starting to appear, but it wasn't very thick. There wasn't a lot of people. There were kind of just the hangouts on the end. Like at a concert, you always have the people in the back. That's kind of like what they were. And as we were kind of going to weaving through it, it started getting bigger and bigger. And then we finally noticed the gazebo where they were holding the rally, and we noticed the entire thing was engulfed just with protesters. It was probably about a quarter to a half mile thick. What was the first insult or piece of heckling that you heard directed at you? Some dude came up to me and yelled, take that effing flag off and said, you have no right to wear it. Did you fight in any war? And I just laughed at him and I was like are you kidding me I'm it's an American flag 
this it it's not about your valor it's about the country as a whole remember everyone like you say and he didn't really like that too much he just kept yelling at me calling me a fascist and i said how am i a fascist if i'm a constitutionalist and he was like shut up and take that flag off so i kind of just laughed at that point because i knew there was no talking to him i started walking away did that interaction just kind of dissipate more or less yeah he just stayed where he was because he wasn't really about to do anything and he couldn't really say anything. My friend was in the ar- uh, was in the army that I was with and when he asked him the same question as me, of course my friend was like, yes, I served in the army. And then he asked him where and my friend went uh, somewhere in Africa and he just insulted him and said, oh, you didn't do shit. And it was really disrespectful and... But we kind of just let it go because we weren't really trying to start any problems. And so we just moved along from that point. At which I saw a member of the Daily Caller gave him an interview as to what had just happened to me. And he essentially started following me around. And we walked over maybe 10 or 20 feet. And I couldn't find the entrance. So I went over and asked some police officers. And they said, I'm not sure go down and ask those other police officers who were maybe 150 feet uh, away from us. So I continued on and came up to these uh, other group of cops and I asked them and they said, I don't know, go to the front of the gate. But in order to do that, I would have to go through this massive mob crowd. But I don't know. I wasn't scared, but I didn't want to start problems. I, I just didn't really care. I just went and I went to the gate and asked how to get in and then everybody noticed I was trying to get in and then that's when they started booing me and yelling at me and then I like started walking away and people like started to harass me. One guy knocked my hat off and I kind of just laughed at all of them because they were just yelling absurd things like I was a Nazi and a fascist for literally donning an American flag on my back and wearing a MAGA hat. that's the beauty of America and free speech. If you don't like what someone says or you don't like somebody, who cares? Talk whatever you want. I don't care. I advocate for their free speech too. They can yell whatever they want at me. I don't care as long as they don't put their hands or assault me. But I was, there was, they were throwing bottles of urine at the police and I, I don't know. I was being drenched in water and spit. So I, I don't know. People can decide for themselves. <laughs> Did you feel at any point inclined to try to 
differentiate yourself from what they were accusing you of? I did say occasionally throughout the entire thing, I'm not a Nazi. And one Black Lives Matter guy came up to me and screamed Black Lives Matter in my face and like kind of spit on me while he did it. And it was fucking gross. And yeah, he yelled Black Lives Matter. And I said, who said you don't? And he kind of looked at me like perplexed. And at that point is when I was driven away. What percentage of the people that were there were these people that were like making an effort to go and confront you? Would you say it was most people or is it just a small percentage? I mean, it was a small percentage because the attention would only go so many people like thick in the crowd and there was a good chunk, maybe I'd, I'd say about two or 300 following down. But at any point, we were eventually surrounded by the cops because they realized what was happening. And so I was essentially getting escorted throughout the entire common while getting screamed at by... Because it wasn't the same people. We like They took me through the entire crowd and I just got booed and screamed at the entire time because everybody noticed what was going on. What was the process by which did they link arms with you the uh, the police i mean how did they go about kind of trying to protect you and and as a broader question from that were you happy with the police presence there in regards to how they helped me they essentially formed a small circle around me and just people couldn't really get to me without going through the cops and yeah i was very pleased with and appreciative for how they helped me out of there because if they weren't there, I probably, it probably would have escalated to people stomping me out. In regards to what happened after I was thrown in the paddy wagon, they threw me in and drove me. Obviously I couldn't see where we were, but we were still on the edge of the common. I think we were on the other end. There was no protesters in sight and they kind of stopped and opened the back and I stayed in the paddy wagon because they didn't even search me when I got in. They just kind of threw me in the paddy wagon. And then they got there and they like took my backpack and they put those like zip tie cuffs on me. And I asked them what was going on and they said, We're, we have to check if you're being under placed under arrest. And I said, why would I be placed under arrest? I didn't break any laws. And they said, we have to wait and see and on the report from that. Because, I mean, obviously everyone would say, oh, I didn't do anything. But literally I didn't. And so they drove me and waited and then they came over and they were like, yeah, you're not being uh, placed under arrest. They were like, what the hell did you do? And I kind of like joked around with them and they were like, and I thanked them and was like, they were like, all right, we're going to drop you off somewhere. And then they brought me to government station and essentially implied that I take the train and get out of there and was like, if you come back, we're going to arrest you for inciting a riot. What did, what's your opinion of that? Obviously, I don't like that because I wasn't... The point of my presence being somewhere where I'm free to be shouldn't incite a riot. Yeah. I'd never have said anything bad to anyone, and I didn't that day, not to one person. I even said what they wanted me to say, and they still didn't care. Because, obviously, I I don't think or believe in white supremacy and all that garbage, but it's just been grouped in with people.
When we return, we'll hear from Tom Arabia, an organizer for Combat, the coalition to organize and mobilize Boston against Trump. He was one of the activists responsible for turning out those crowds that clashed with John Connolly and others on August 19th. But first, a word from our sponsors. So our first sponsor is Data Does Good. Its mission is to create new sources of funding for charitable causes by helping you see your data as a valuable resource that can be used for the public good. Using anonymous shopping information, Data Does Good is able to discover consumer trends and then sell these insights to brands. Data Does Good then donates the majority of the proceeds to important causes that you care about. All of the information is 100% anonymous, private, and secure. It's free to join and only takes 30 seconds, so don't let your shopping history go to waste. Go to www.datadoesgood.com to find out more about how you can let your data do some good. After decades of communism, an 80-year-old gentleman named Yaroslav is about to fulfill his lifelong dream of sailing the ocean in a handmade yacht, a feat only possible thanks to hope, hard work, and the Czechoslovakian Velvet Revolution. The film is called Velvet Citizen, Samatovi Obchane. And if you want to find out more about the documentary, you can visit www.velvetcitizen.com or you can visit the International Documentary Association, IDA, where you can think about donating some money to the project. If that's the case, then visit www.documentary.org slash project slash velvet dash citizen. Want to explore the last Shangri-La? My Bhutan at mybhutan.com offers the most unique experiences in the Royal Kingdom of Bhutan. Every trip supports the philanthropic activities of Bhutan's largest nonprofit. Visit mybhutan.com to reserve your travel today. That's mybhutan, M Y B H U T A N.com. My name is Tom Arabia, and as an activist, I'm a member of COMBAT. That's the coalition to organize and mobilize Boston against Trump. All issues of injustice are important to us. Um, so we have mobilized for all sorts of different activities, all sorts of different actions around Boston. When it came to Standing Rock, uh, we did some things there and helped to support um, when it came to uh, the organization, Cosecha organized a, um, a kind of a sit-in or a blockade, if you will, a sort of human blockade to, quote, shut down the ICE facility, um, the South Bay Detention Center. We participated in that. Um, we've also organized um, for May Day, you know, student walkouts. And um, most recently, we organized for the... Um, demonstration which was turned out to be quite successful in Boston of a total of 45,000 people against uh, what were believed to be white supremacists organizing under the banner of free speech on August 19th. But I think we have to also be quite clear that um, on that day there were two Facebook events 
for demonstrations that were called. One was stand in solidarity. One was fight supremacy. Okay, fight supremacy was the event, if you will, that garnered the vast majority of the support. And that was actually organized by um, Monica Cannon Grant, another woman by the name of uh, Angie Camacho, I believe, if I remember the name correctly, as well as Didi Delgado, who is an organizer with um, Unitarian Universalist Black Lives, as well as uh, Cambridge Black Lives Matter organization and other groups. And it was under the leadership of black women who were based in Boston that uh, a huge amount of support from all the, all the way from labor unions such as um, the uh, Massachusetts Teacher Union and others um, and other groups rallied behind. Uh, we had a smaller event which contributed to the overall numbers and it just so happened that we had called that, um, that march simultaneously with fight supremacy and that's why we maintained it in order to have another starting location for people who were getting to the common. Um, we contributed with marshals and other things. Um, so that was that drew somewhere between two and 3,000 people. It's hard to say exactly. And that was called Stand with Solidarity? Stand in Solidarity, yeah. yeah. And you were more involved in, in organizing for that event? Yes, yes. Okay. And so what was the timeline of that event? How does that work? At what point do you think, okay, this is gonna be a good time to do this? Um, What's involved from your end as an organizer? Well, first of all, it's important to, I think, understand that the reason why that day overall was able to be such a success is because of what had happened in Charlottesville and the way in which Charlottesville garnered national attention. And it garnered national attention for at least a few different reasons. Number one was because you had fascists out in tiki to- with tiki torches and so on, openly calling for genocide and things that pretty much everyone despises and wants to oppose. Even people who are relatively conservative, right-wing, patriotic, what you will, will ask the question, you know, didn't we fight a world war to stop this and so on? Uh, so setting aside the problematic nature of U.S. imperialism and world war, um, there was a broad mass sentiment of opposition to that display of utter violence, bigotry, and hatred. Secondly, is the fact that Heather Heyer died and other people were injured very seriously um, and have been before. But at that particular moment, it got tremendous amount of attention in the media because people came out to oppose these white supremacists. And there were various kinds of opposition. There was physical confrontation, um, and there was also mass response. There was response from clergy who were united. And you may have seen images of uh, people from different kinds of denominations and churches and faiths um, arm in arm marching and so on. And then there was a, a tremendous vigil, which was very moving, you know, the following day. And um, the way in which our white supremacist in chief, uh, President Donald Trump, responded to it with basically negligence and um, effectively condoning white supremacy by saying, oh, well, you know, there's good people among them, and so on. Um, And saying that, well, there's violence on many sides as though there's a equivalency to 
wanting to massacre all Jews or black people and wanting to oppose that. Um, that also, I think, really aroused a sense of urgency in the general public. So there were things that were happening in the context of United States politics that were outside of the control of any particular organizer that allowed for that event to be as successful as it was. Um, there was also the tremendous work, hundreds or thousands of hours of work of uh, black women that had organized the fight supremacy demonstration um, prior, in other words, building their networks, building their reputations, doing the work of local organizing and fighting white supremacy as it exists in today's uh, forms on a daily basis that had led to that being successful. So for us, it was really about um, making a statement in that context and supporting as much as we could. So had you planned this event prior to Charlottesville? And that was only a week right. before. So was, was this event already going to take place, but it kind of took on a different nature and different context after Charlottesville? Yes. And so, were yeah. you literal in, in, in doing so, or did it just kind of happen organically, like sort of obviously that it, the, the context and the nature would change? Or were you in your materials and in your calls to action, did you specifically pivot the language you're using to cause call more attention to what had taken place in Charlottesville well this was not the first free speech rally so-called free speech rally that took place in Boston we also organized against the last one and that happened last May or April I can't remember uh, was it May I believe it was May yeah it yeah. was in May right um, so last May we organized something and it was a lot smaller on our side, okay? And we put in a lot of effort in order to get attention around it, but there were really only between, let's say, 100 and 150 people that showed up. And most of them were of the far left already, you know, people who were already activists, already plugged in, already in the know, so to speak, about activist events. Um, but that free speech rally was one of hundreds of rallies across the country, not necessarily that are organizationally intertwined, uh, but which have been an expression of an emboldening of the far right after Donald Trump. So we had already, let's say, had our finger on the pulse um, and we're trying to plan something already. But once Charlottesville happened, um, it did take on a whole other character. Were you expecting 40,000, though, or 45,000? Not at all. Um, you know, just by the Facebook numbers, I was expecting to overwhelm the white supremacists by, let's say, about 100 to 1. It was more like 2,000 to 1, uh, which is remarkable. And, you know, it's more than an order of magnitude larger than uh, what would have already been one of the largest anti-racist demonstrations in Boston's history. And as it happened, uh, it may have been the largest, you know, since the 1970s at the, at the latest. Um, also one of the more militant demonstrations in terms of the um, mass character of people's willingness to take on um, very, you know, militant anti-racist chants and um, being ready to very seriously oppose this kind of threat in our city. So 
when you're talking about tactics like those chants, where do those come from? Um, I'm always wondering, like, is that a just is there a tradition of sort of that kind of vocalization in the activist community that other people just kind of naturally pick up on when they attend event? Like, say, I'm some person who's never attended a anti-racist demonstration. Mm-hmm. Do you think people just sort of see others doing that and it spreads or is there some sort of um, intentional effort on your part as an activist as, as being one of those people who's more plugged in or in the know or has a sort of an activist uh, focus? Do you try to sort of disseminate those types of tactics and strategies to the people who are attending your event or is it kind of happen more uh, ad hoc? Well, that's a combination of the two, right? Because, you know, uh, you can't really have something like this without organizers and without some leadership. But it's also not possible for a small number of organizers and leadership to just manifest 40,000 people in a week's notice unless they're already, you know, organized, such as into unions and things like that. Um, But everyone who is trying to make an effort to build these kinds of actions has to think about what do we want to get out of this? How is this going to be the most productive? Where do we want it to go? How can we try to keep people safe? Um, How can we keep the morale of the, um, of the demonstration high? What kind of politics and message uh, do we want to inject into this demonstration and express in this action? And um, it's combat in particular is not about being, you know, top down, uh, but we do want things to be as constructive as possible. And there is, you know, as you implied in your question, a very long tradition going back really hundreds of years um, on the left, you could say, of people using chants and slogans to, um, you know, have political messaging at demonstrations, at strikes and things like that in order to keep, you know, spirits high, in order to keep people marching, um, and in order to have a sense of unity. I mean, when people are standing around, let's say, even if they're holding signs, they might not necessarily feel as united as they would be if they're all chanting the same thing. And so it's important that we, um, you know, bring bullhorns out and say very clearly, like, Nazis out, and things like, um, you know, no fascists, no Trump, no KKK, uh, no fascist USA, um, things that are relatively basic, you know, Black Lives Matter, that sort of thing. Um, but when everyone is chanting it at once, it starts to feel like something even uh, more powerful, more meaningful. Do you ever hear in the midst of an event like what happened on the 19th, um, things being chanted where you turn your head and say, hmm, that's not the message I want to be sending? Um, I would say that there are occasional chants that are, you know, that could be a little bit cringeworthy or uh, things that one might look askance at. Um, Personally, I did not hear anything that I would describe that way on the 19th, to be quite frank. But there were 45,000 people there, so clearly I wouldn't have heard everything that was chanted uh, or everything that was said. But typically speaking, when you have crowds that big and um, leadership as strong as it was, particularly in the case of the fight supremacy demonstration, uh, normally the message is pretty on point. 
you know, the, the chance that you really cringe at and that really disgust you are the ones that are coming from the right wingers and the white supremacists. But things like, you know, that I heard, you know, die Nazis. Um, I heard people calling others virgin, you know, as a sort of a characterization of the angry white guy in his basement who's just right. an alt-right internet troll. Yeah. That, to me, would seem out of step with kind of the what you are clearly trying to get across. And I know that it's because of the numbers. And I, what I'm wondering is, how do you kind of walk that balance between an event getting big and it's successful for you guys in that you want to draw in more mainstream people, people who may not be as tapped in and as familiar, but then how do you kind of moderate or at least how do you think about when people start to come in that aren't really there for the right reasons or they're not informed or they're not behaving in the ways that you would see? Do you, do you ever turn to someone or say hypothetically, if you were to find yourself standing alongside someone who is behaving in a way that you would not condone, do you feel an obligation to step in and inform them? And how would you go about that? Sure. That's a very good question. Uh, there's a multidimensional kind of answer to that question. In general, number one, combat in particular, lots of organizations on the left, any of them worth their salt, do oppose all forms of oppression. So if anyone is at a march, demonstration, an, act, an action, um, like on Saturday, that starts to say things that might come across as, let's say, ableist, right? That, that's an often kind of, uh, let's say, red herring, right, among rhetoric that's out there. They'll use things that are like, oh, they're crazy, for instance, right? In other words... Um, How would you define ableist? Well, ableism is the oppression of people who are disabled and um, the kinds of ideas that surround that. So if you say that someone's uh, white supremacist viewpoints are due to their mental health, well, that really is kind of like an attack on all people that have me mental health issues, right? So we want to be critical and hold people accountable. Um, using virginity, which, by the way, is a very problematic concept in general, um, uh, to sort of attack people's character in that sort of way, it, you know, because obviously it has no, there's no bearing whatsoever on the issue. Uh, I think we have to recognize that people have all kinds of sexualities, all kinds of sexual expressions, including asexual people who don't necessarily want to have sex and so on. So the idea of using that as an insult, as a slur, is offensive to people with different kinds of sexual preferences, including asexuality and so on. So any of those kinds of problematic ideas, we have to confront within the movement. Um, doesn't always mean that there's time or occasion for that when you're on a march. But if, it, if it's really an issue and someone is chanting or saying some problematic stuff, then yes, you, that, that person needs to be confronted. Normally, you know, in a totally nonviolent way, of course, and in a way that tries to say, look, you know, that's not really the message here. Um, normally, I would recommend doing it with other uh, comrades or other people that you're friends with and say, hey, you know, this person's chanting some problematic stuff or whatever let's let's talk to them um, that's kind of on a short-term immediate level the more long-term level is that 
you know, we want to build a movement in which there are more and more, let's say, organizers, more and more activists who are uh, conscious of all of these issues and are willing to take criticism and self-criticize as well. You know, I mean, there's plenty that I need to work on and plenty that I need to be self-critical about. So we need to be able to criticize each other in the movement without it turning into a circular firing squad, so to speak, and pointing fingers um, in solidarity. But also, you know, we need to be able to build the movement massively for it to be as strong as possible and understand that people are starting in different places. We need to bring them a long way. I think that's the thing that some people are concerned with when they see behavior that seems to be almost at odds with the message of peace um, when there's a sort of violent kind of attitude or stance taken towards someone. And and that's the other th- tricky thing, I think, because how, how would you say, like, what level of intimidation is appropriate when you're, you know, seeking to intimidate bigots, supremacists? Is there a line obviously outside of physical violence, although not everyone would agree that. But is there a certain line where you say this is intimidating and that in itself is violent? Um, What's your range of appropriate measures that can be taken? I think we have to start with understanding that, number one, the capitalist state has a monopoly on violence. So when we talk about violence... We have to understand that capitalism is an inherently violent system. We have, at minimum, a holocaust, if you will, of children every single year who die of starvation. That's a form of violence. Poverty is a form of violence. Wars that are ongoing are forms of violence. Police brutality, of course, is a form of violence. When we're talking about fascism and Nazism and white supremacy, what that is is essentially a crystallization of all the worst aspects in an ideological form that are already latent within the capitalist system, stemming back from colonialism and slavery and patriarchy, crystallized into uh, groups of people who want to essentially enact the worst forms of violence on those who are already oppressed. So in order to prevent that movement from becoming um, a larger factor in society, such as has become, you know, in Europe um, in the past, historically, and even to varying degrees in Latin America and elsewhere, um, I think it's a question of by any means necessary. But by any means necessary does not mean that um, all means are at all times necessary or advantageous, right? So um, I think what we need to do is have a movement that is um, smart and is cautious because if we use tactics that are overly divisive, then we can be um, dividing people who would be otherwise erstwhile supporters and also provoking the um, institutions that already have a monopoly of power and violence on us. Um, And so I think we have to be very, very careful when it comes to those kinds of um, more extreme tactics. Um, But in terms of intimidating people, you know, I have no problem with intimidating fascists to the maximal extent. Um, Now, that said... 
um, we need to keep a spirit of unity. And 45,000 people marching is a certain kind of statement, and it happened peacefully. And as a consequence, in 36 states, there were as many as 67 um, rallies by far right-wing people that were canceled. And so that kind of intimidation is a good thing. I think we have to be clear about that. Intimidating people who want genocide is good. That's good. Now, when it comes to people who might be, let's say, more on the fence, hopefully they can be dissuaded from getting involved, ever getting involved with something like that. Uh, and they can keep their ideas that are more right-wing to themselves rather than getting involved in, um, you know, white supremacist organizations who really want to become more dangerous. And do you think if someone is on that fence, on that bubble, so to speak, the sort of more intense intimidation tactics might push them to the edge, to the wrong part of the fence or the wrong side of the fence? Um, well, historically speaking, when they lose, they lose. I mean, you know what I mean? So there might be some people who um, turn in that direction, but it's mostly not, right? So, for instance, you see now that there have been some white supremacists who have been uh, doxxed, meaning their information has become public. Now, that's um, something that we need to be very careful about because if you dox the wrong person and label them as a white supremacist, then that could ruin their lives and they could be innocent. So that has to be very, very, we need to be very, very careful about that. Um, But uh, for those who were seen with tiki torches and so on, and who have since been fired, they've lost their jobs, or um, they've since become pariahs in their community. Um, That's actually a good thing. You know, public shaming and calling these people out is necessary. And if people are therefore intimidated in the sense of, oh, you know what, I don't want to show up at a white supremacist march because, you know, actually people might not look at me the same way. And therefore that uh, that means of their organizing in a public, emboldened fashion is decreased, that's actually a good thing. Um, but we also have to keep our eyes on the prize, if you don't mind my making a larger point, because it's not just about the diminishment of the far right's organizing capacity and potential. It's also really about what are we trying to do? We're trying to create a society that is more equal, that is more liberated, that is um, where wealth is distributed more fairly, in which justice is distributed more fairly, in which there aren't attacks on black people by the police, et cetera, et cetera. So organizing against the far right is important, but it's only a means to an end in terms of building broader social movements for social justice, for immigrants, for LGBTQ, et cetera seems like what you're saying is this consciousness raising is just the first step. There has to be something tangible, specific, actionable down the line. And what I find really interesting is there's a criticism of some, or it could be also just merely an observation of more modern uh, social movements such as Black Lives Matter, such as Occupy, and that they don't have the same kind of rigorous structure and organization that the often vaunted civil rights movement had as sort of the golden standard of of doing very specific things 
with a clear um, plan in mind that obviously translated into some measure of success, although I'm sure they would have wished for greater success. But there's this conversation around a lot of the social movements that are happening that they are sort of diffuse, that they don't have this like nucleus, they don't have a brain inside of them that is creating that smartness about the tactics that are used or about the measures that are that are used. Do you feel that ever? Like it's hard to, you have, you're like playing with explosives that you have this ability to muster large amounts of people, but you don't have the same kind of communication and clarity um, that you would, you would hope to have? Or do you feel like you're still able to create smart and actionable steps towards real change? Because at, at some point, the, these movements, these demonstrations, you would hope they would translate into legislative outcomes or whatever they may be, but have some sort of real impact in the society and the fabric of our society. So do you feel like you at times are, are fighting against forces that are creating more leveling, but less sort of clarity in, in your, your activism? I'm not a historian and I'm not an expert in terms of being able to compare these things um, to a, a meticulous and scholarly degree. Um, however, I would like to remark that the current existing infrastructure of the movement for Black Lives or Black Lives Matter movements and organizations um, in various cities uh, does have a tremendous reservoir of very um, articulate, very intelligent, very conscious individuals who are um, very, let's say, clear and coherent about what their goals are and what they're trying to do. And so I wouldn't underestimate that for a second. And I think if that's not clear to you uh, or to anyone, that they really should go and investigate um, because these um, movements may not be as, uh, let's say, coherently united behind one personality, such as Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, or Malcolm X, um, as may have um, appeared historically. Uh, but that does not mean that they're not extremely thoughtful and they're not ongoingly active. And it's actually because of that thoughtfulness and that ongoing activism that something like the Fight Supremacy March was possible. You know, it was really the Fight Supremacy March was organized by people who were Black Lives Matter activists for the most part, you know, um, or... I mean, it depends on how you divide up the organizations, but it was Black Lives Matter Boston, Black Lives Matter Cambridge, Violence in Boston, which is organized by uh, Monica Cannon Grant, and their networks, which really made this uh, demonstration possible. And they're also doing other things. You know, for instance, in Boston, there's the Deeper Than Water Coalition. So that's a coalition of uh, several organizations who are trying to draw attention to um, injustice in the Norfolk prison. And essentially, they've been, that prison has been officially assessed to have water that is subpar in terms of its drinkability. And so you have um, people getting sick, really, from just using and drinking the water there. So Deeper Than Water is trying to draw attention to that. There's lots of these co um, kinds of initiatives that are going on. So 
that's the first thing in terms of highlighting the the tactics and intelligence and consciousness that already exists. Um, but it's true that there are lots of different organizations, you know, none of which have an overwhelming amount of power and ability to mobilize masses of people at any time. That's the current state of the left um, in the United States right now. And so, you know, we're in a process of building. And I think it's through mass demonstrations and through working together in, in ways that are um, genuine in solidarity that will build more unity and more coherence to the movement in general. I do want to get to what I think is the hardest thing for me to ask in that I think the one of the bigger narratives that has come out of what happened uh, in Boston on August 19th is that the boogeyman was never there and that there was a misidentification of people that were attending a free speech rally as Nazis or as white supremacists. And I know you've commented that a lot can happen under the guise, right, of a free speech rally. Right. It, but it did seem like in leading up to the event that the organizer um, made a, a sincere effort to disavow uh, white supremacy and try to deny his event as a platform for such people. Did you feel like the event could only happen if those types of people showed up? Do you feel they, like they did show up? How do you kind of reckon with the fact that this was a, a fight supremacy move, uh, you know, event, yet there didn't seem to be a lot of Nazi activity there? In fact, if you see some of the videos of what was happening actually in the gazebo there, there's Black Lives Do Matter posters, there's... Uh, an Indian American speaker. There's uh, posters that say fight Monsanto, uh, you know, fight GMO. It's a broad sort of amalgamation of different interests. And it's sort of not a very coherent picture mm -hmm. of what was happening there really. But do you feel like that was a failure in a way? Or do you, and, and especially when you see clips of people yelling die Nazi or get out Nazi to people who then reply, I'm not a Nazi. Do you just not believe them? Or do you feel like, you know, how do you respond? How do you reckon with that? The sort of dis disjunct that took place. First of all, let's talk about the past free speech rally. At that rally, there were clear white supremacists and fascists. That rally was unambiguously a platform for white supremacy. And I will say that without caveat. They were waving Keck flags. You'll have to look that up or your listeners will have to look that up. K-E-K. -E it's essentially a flag that's been modeled after traditional uh, fascist iconography for what is a modern day fascist-like movement that has been built off of the internet, essentially. So Keck flags, three percenter flags, that's another racist organization. There were Oath Keepers there. 
and there were Proud Boys, and there were other organizations represented who were clearly white supremacist in orientation, in varying degrees to varying degrees of severity. But we visited some Facebook pages of some of these folks who were involved uh, with the last free speech rally, and they were openly calling for the extermination of all Muslims, etc. So the fact that they didn't show up because they were scared, that's not a failure. That's a success. That was the success of our demonstration, telling them, you're not welcome and you should be scared. You actually should be scared to show your face in such an emboldened and in such an uh, unapologetic way, calling for the extermination of people of color and so on. That is an absolute unequivocal success. And they had as few people as they had because of the, lo- the size of our demonstration. That was also why their messaging changed and why they were much more, uh, let's say, nuanced in saying, oh, no, we support free speech in general and so on. If to whatever extent there were signs with positive messages, Black Lives Matter under the gazebo, great, fine. I, no problem from me uh, with that. But the issue becomes that they are not all idiots and they can be rather chameleon-like given the way the wind is blowing. And I want to give a more concrete example of this. One of the um, demonstrators in Charlottesville was based in Boston. You may have seen a story that Time ran about him. I don't remember his name. He was an 18-year-old Trump supporter who went to Boston University. One One of the questions that Time asked him was more or less, you know, well, are you a white supremacist? What do you think about this uh, claim? And he said, well, I'm not a white supremacist. I just am there to oppose multiculturalism and immigration. Think about that. There is actually no clearer way to identify a white supremacist than if they oppose multiculturalism and immigration, right? So, of course, he's a white supremacist. He might not identify that way. He might merely identify as a Trump supporter. This is the way that these movements are built. It's not that there's a ready-made class of people who are self-identified Nazis and so on. There are those people out there. But there's also um, a hardcore, let's say, of Trump supporters. In fact, polls show that there's about 20% of the country who would support Trump no matter what he does. That's literally a reply to a question that they would support him no matter what he does. So among those people who are clearly far right, there is uh, enough of a sentiment, enough of a a ferment of right-wing, white supremacist-like ideology for people who are already more hardcore, who are already in organized forces to recruit from and to build a movement out of. Right, And so that's how the free speech rally and other such rallies of the far right function. There are people who are consciously trying to build a movement which is seeded f- from people who are not already all consciously far right, etc. They might have 
varying contradictory ideas. Um, and so the, the sort of cognitive dissonance that comes to play when it comes to someone saying, uh, die Nazi or whatever, and that you're not necessarily a Nazi. That person might have been wrong to call that specific individual a Nazi in the sense that that specific individual might not have been a Nazi. But there are worse mistakes that you can make. And maybe that person will then go home and say, you know what, I don't want to be associated with this. If this thing is associated with Nazis, which is a cor correct assumption that it would be associated with white supremacists and fascists and so on, which was clearly evident in the last one. If this organization or this rally or whatever is associated with that, maybe there's other ways for me to express my ideas and maybe there's other organizations, maybe there's other political movements, maybe there's other things and so on. Um, so that's what I would hope would take place as a result. As for people who had no clue, it's a little bit, um, that would, it would, I'm a little bit incredulous. I'm a little bit incredulous. You have a one demonstration that is there, that is gathered a steam of something like 20,000 supporters saying that they're going and then thousands more saying that they're interested on Facebook. That's saying, we are doing this demonstration in order to oppose white supremacy. And you want to go say, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm going to go on the other side. I didn't know that they were associated with white supremacy. Um, doesn't really, I don't really buy that. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily a fascist, but they're actually willing to go out and take a stand on the opposite side of people who are opposing fascism and who are being led by black women, you know, working class organizers based in, you know, Roxbury and Dorchester and so on. Um, so, yeah, it makes me a little bit incredulous. But do I have any empathy for them? It really depends on uh, where they're coming from out of that. You know, did that transform them? Did they learn something? Are they willing to get humble and, and, and ask some deep questions about what is that movement? What is it actually trying to represent? Who is Trump, the Republican Party? What have they done? What have they done to oppress people, to immigrants, to black people, to LGBTQ people? If you can actually get with the program and start questioning some of these um, beliefs that you might have, that actually uh, reproduce and reinforce oppression in society, then sure, I'll have that conversation, you know. Um, but if people want to dance around and tiptoe around uh, the fact that, you know, Trump is an absolute racist and uh, a white supremacist of, of a kind in his own right, and that um, supporting the, let's say, make America great again slogan and ideology is really one about um, raising the power and status of rich white people against working class and um, people of color, then, you know, that's a whole different kind of question. The question of John's guilt in this matter comes down to freedom of association, which is constitutionally protected, but of course comes with its share of cultural and social consequences. There is a very real sense in these heated public encounters that when you stand with one side, 
you ally yourself completely, without distinction, with the totality of the movement, including the worst of its members. This probably isn't very fair, but with high-stakes issues like race, it comes with the territory. Allegiance ultimately becomes a ranking of priorities. Were there any people at either rally that you might say there's something about either what they're wearing, a poster they're carrying, a thing they're saying where you might understand why someone might mistake them for a white supremacist? I I mean, I see it happen all the time. I don't know where it originally derived from, but it's essentially the way leftists look at it is anyone right wing is like a Nazi and hates immigrants and equality and whatever. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that began in the media or, or what happened with that, but essentially it became, if you advocate for or don't advocate for socialism, then you hate black people. Were there any specific, you know, and, and it could still be a miss identification of you know someone seeing something but were there any things that you think flags shirts signs hats whatever it might be that make people think white supremacy and not just a trump hat but something beyond that at either rally i did see people at the first rally with a confederate flag and i understand both sides um, if you take my opinion and make it irrelevant because it should it should be irrelevant to everyone's opinion is that's their freedom of expression um, as much as I don't agree with the confederate flag and think the confederate flag is kind of loserish literally I believe anyone should be able to fly it if they want just like the left flies their soviet flags in protesting our rallies and I believe that's their freedom of expression and freedom of protest to counter-protest what we're saying. I also asked him about the green Kekistan flag that could be seen flying at the first rally and that hung behind us on the wall of his room. Uh, that This is where the interview takes a comedic uh, side. I can't even say it with a straight face. Um, uh, Kekistan is a completely ironic, fictitious country that was made as a reactionary meme. What was the um, meme that it, or the, what was the thing that it was reacting to? Um, just to to troll liberals. If they're going to get mad by a meme, then it, of course. And if someone gets their jollies by somebody like losing their mind and people fucking with people, then. So yeah. what? what is Kekistan? It's a, it, it's a made up. What, what happens in this country, this fictitious country? Um, that's not so much elaborated on. It's. It was kind of just a joke because on like refugees, it was like Kek Fujis and uh, Kekistan was supposed to be like the country where they could move to or secede to and not be um, dominated by, as they would say, normies, which is fucking liberals essentially or just leftists in general or people that want to like social justice warriors. So it's a it's a refuge for people on the on the right essentially that they can go to and live the life without being sort of subjugated to liberal ideology exactly it's it's a joke essentially because most of them end up being just libertarians or republicans in general and they're not actually like wanting to secede and make their own country from it um yeah it's because people say that uh white men have oppressed 
all these refugees and all these minorities for so long. Uh, it's a sort of ironic play on them being oppressed by liberals because they're white men. And uh, so you have a flag here in your room. Um, what, how did you get that? What, so they're so obviously people are printing them and onto fabric and selling them on online. I imagine. How did you end up getting to the point where you have one hanging above your Trump flag? Uh, I'll start with where the whole thing started from. Um, it started as Keck on 4chan because after people would say LOL, if you type LOL into the World of Warcraft language, it translates to K-E-K. So people started saying Keck instead of LOL. And obviously we know 4chan is where all the trolls hang out. So, of course, a bunch of trolls are going to create a troll country against liberals. And they decided, oh, since they think we're racist, let's make it Kekistan. And uh, unrelated, I guess, um, they had the Pepe meme that was deemed a hate symbol by the American Defamation League. And so they started spamming using him to offend people more because if it's going to be a hate symbol, it might as well, like, actually offend people. So they made that, and then they realized that there's actually an ancient god of Egypt, uh, the god of death, I believe, or the god of chaos, was named Kek, and his deity was a frog. So they started naming... Pepe Keck and it was like a whole joke on that and so it's pretty much two jokes rolled into one in made into a fictitious country and then they took the old uh, SS war flag changed the color took the swastika out of it and put a Keck symbol in the middle of it and a 4chan symbol at the top so it's basically the perfect storm of internet trolling more or less exactly it's the manifestation of that and so it's it's specifically designed to troll and another way of saying that is to sort of offend people that you deem to be too easily offended originally yes but uh the whole kekistan has sort of taken on like a culture of its own like people that acknowledge kekistan i guess or like joke about it or you know make it like fly a flag it just kind of shows to other people oh i'm not going to yell at you if you say some kind of slur i'm not a pc person like i'm down with that culture could you see how that starts to look to some people a little bit like a confederate flag no not one bit in that it's this is a safe space i'm flying this flag as a beacon to other people that i'm okay with using maybe i won't but i won't mind if you use a racial slur and so you create a space and under which that flag that language becomes okay therefore encouraged or therefore allowed or therefore taking place do you see how that starts to create an environment around that flag that starts to look an awful lot like a white supremacist gathering no because people just if there was a gathering with kekistan they don't just show up and start screaming like horrible obscenities they might make jokes, but but if a person were to like if a if a black person were to come in there and people were joking using the n word or using other hateful words, don't you think that might affect them? Like, do you 
think that they might be emotionally affected by that. Well, I feel there's a, a big difference between internet trolling and memes than gathering in a square and just screaming the n-word um i think that's pretty racist there's no like it's their free speech and remember that's their right to do that at first and foremost regardless of what's being said um but yeah no it's their right just like i would give anyone else rights to say whatever they want as long as they gather a permit and they're not disturbing the peace or disrupting um a public event or but why do you feel like you get to decide like what's hateful or hurtful to someone else like those words aren't hurtful to you therefore why should you be the one that decides whether or not it's hurtful the person who it's affecting should be the one to say, hey, that I, I don't want you to say that. I don't want to have to walk past people who are saying that. It's not, it, it's not your choice to decide whether it's hurtful or not. It's also not their choice to tell me whether or not I can't say it. But don't you care whether it hurts them or not? You mean in regards, not to physical hurt, but if it just hurts their feelings. Do you not care whether it hurts them? No. Um, I don't really care about people's feelings. If they don't want to hear something, then walk away from it. Um, you obviously have a capacity to do that, and that's something you've demonstrated, like in this interview. But like, not everyone is like you. Um, there's some people that like. Also, for us as white men, there's definitely not as deep a history and not the deep scars of hateful words that have been used against us. I think there's a lot of pain in those words for black people, for gay people, for women. And do you not feel like, you know, I can say this, but like it's hurting this person, whether you can maybe not believe them, but why not just give them the benefit of the doubt and just not say those things? Um, I'm not saying go and purposely say things just to hurt people. I, that's just being a jackass. But, um, I'm not going to say that they can't say it. Obviously, if they're in a public place and someone's a paying customer somewhere or they're harassing someone walking down the street. But, like, we could just as a society, look at it this way. We're at a, at a party. There's 50 people there randomly selected. Um, we're drinking. We're having a good time. Some music's on. Maybe in that a song that gets put on, there's some hate words. And maybe someone says, hey, guys, can we listen to something else? Like, I, I don't really like this. It's kind of like reminding me of some shit that happened to my family and my ancestors that, like, really sucks to think about. Don't you think that group of people would decide, oh, yeah, let's change the song to something that's not going to make this person feel this way? I uh see it what's taking place around these words in this country being sort of a, a macro you know, macrocosm of that. And I think it would be much easier to decide on a smaller level that that's just a no brainer. Why would we put someone else through something that they wouldn't want to hurt? It's just such an easy choice just to change the song. Yeah. And that I believe 
as a society or like you said at a party which is a representation of society yeah essentially if all society believes something then they're going to weed these things out and that's perfectly fine if all of society wants it to be that way how, how can i argue against that you know but i just don't believe that there should be government mandated laws saying these things because laws are left open for interpretation to include a lot of different scenarios and that just gives government more control or more avenues to keep control on people of course i think we shouldn't go around spouting hate speech um but that's the thing people can just not listen to it they don't have to be forced to listen to it because you can't force me to do anything all you can do is force me not to infringe on someone else's right but if say you're a black guy that on your walk to to work every day you live in richmond virginia and you got to walk past the statue of stonewall jackson or some confederate war hero or you have to walk past a uh public building with a confederate flag i mean in that sense you are being forced you can walk away but you got to walk past that again tomorrow and then the next day do you feel like it's always that easy just to walk away from something yes uh because nobody's forcing them to look at it just because you walk by somewhere that makes you offended on some level to the point if anybody can prove to me that they have a documented slave relative and they can add like completely chase their heritage to that and have like a story and it was a story that most black people in this country share You mean in being a descendant of slaves? Yeah, no. Essentially, most of them, or if not all of them, are because I mean we can't account for immigration. Of course, not no. Of course, not all, but many, most, yes, probably most. But I mean, I agree, and it's their right to be upset about it. And I'm not agreeing with slavery. Of course, I think it's detestable, and. But if an entire culture or a society wants to erect a building in memory of someone that not necessarily fought for what the narrative was, if you want to even say it was about slavery and not states' rights, then you can say not all of them needed to believe in it, just like the quotes from Robert E. Lee. He didn't believe in slavery, but he lived in the South and the state seceded and he was part of the military. So he joined the Confederacy Um, to say that people are inherently racist or want slavery to exist just because they fought for the Confederacy is kind of, I don't know, you're putting them in an unfair box. It's like. We have soldiers now that don't necessarily believe in what they're doing, but they do it because they've made a commitment to do it and they're fighting for the country and they're essentially taking orders. So unless if they erect a statue now of like David Duke, the leader of the KKK, then yeah, that's 
stupid because the guy's a piece of shit. His ideology is and it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. But to tear down or to remove or to put restrictions on speech because it's going to hurt somebody's feelings when they just don't have to pay attention to it, I think is a little ludicrous because then anybody can say that something offends them. And like, again, you're setting that precedent and it's, they should want to be reminded of it. So they can have the opportunity to, it's almost like a motivation. Like in my life, I've had a lot of hardships. My family has had many, many hardships and I wouldn't erase that or erase any of those scars, so to speak, because it taught me a lesson. It taught me how things used to be and how bad things can be. But once you progress and you start to get more opportunities, you can better your life if you really want to. So I know people can do it. Sometimes it's harder than others. And I know it, and I agree with that, but it's on an individual basis just like I believe rights should be individual. The iconography of the alt-right may be tongue-in-cheek, but it offers a convenient slippage, allowing its various light factions to coexist with more extreme groups while maintaining an ironic distance. John tends to play down the seriousness of these images, and while I do believe he is sincere in this, his flags, signs, slogans, and memes nevertheless foster offensive speech and spread the growth and emboldening of right-wing extremists. These signs have real implications both because they send signals to like-minded ideologues, but also because they inspire resentment towards those who seek to discourage hate speech. While John and his fellow trolls and provocateurs may attempt to drain fascist and racist imagery of its history, that history is much more real for marginalized groups that still feel they are suffering from the pain and injustice of the past. Ultimately, this is the central conversation that provided the backdrop to the events in Charlottesville, and subsequently to those in Boston a week later. Whether the government has any responsibility to regulate the signs and symbols of the far right. And if that responsibility will be limited to the private sphere, what are the socio-cultural repercussions for those who brandish those images? How vigorously will the mainstream reject them? Do they have a legitimate case, or are they just trolls? Of course, this conversation requires the voices of people of color and other minority groups. I kept feeling as John and I discussed Confederate flags and monuments, racial slurs and affirmative action, that we were ill-equipped to convey the gravity and relevance of the debate. Here we were, two white dudes sitting in a bedroom, one smoking a joint, the other sipping a beer, trying to wrap our minds around something that didn't necessarily weigh on our hearts. Angie Camacho is exactly the person for whom these questions hit close to home. She works for Action for Boston Community Development, New England's anti-poverty agency. As a financial social worker, she empowers low-income families by providing financial training and tax assistance. But more broadly, she is a community organizer in Boston, addressing issues of tenancy preservation, education, and health access. I met her in South Boston a week after her campaign for city councilor for the 7th District. Angie was one of the original organizers of the Fight Supremacy March. Following the horrific events that took place in Charlottesville, she met with Monica Cannon, the founder of an organization called Violence in Boston. 
Together, they began hashing out an event that was initially called Block the Bandstand. As RSVPs to the Facebook event began to pour in, they called in Didi Delgado of Black Lives Matter Cambridge and rebranded the event to Fight Supremacy. Angie remained focused on ensuring that the event was safe and peace-focused, still while maintaining a strong message, of course. But she also wrestled with fears that the violence in Charlottesville could happen again. It's a dangerous undertaking. Um, I had a number of people who asked me not to do it, um, who were afraid of my life, um, or afraid for my life, rather. And some people who were just afraid of theirs, you know, just said, you know, I'd like to support you, but I'm not willing to put my life on the line. The fear being that the other side might act violently towards you and something that happened in Charlottesville could could happen again? Correct, correct. Um, There was a huge fear about that. Uh, there was a huge fear about that, um, and, and and it wasn't it you know it wasn't without a foundation, right? We saw what happened in Charlottesville, um, but at some point you have to stop being afraid and you have to stand for something. How did you navigate the assessment of that risk? Having a family, obviously, I'm sure factors into it. At what point does this? become something where you feel I have to go and would you have been less likely to take up a risk like that prior to Charlottesville I would say yes I would say before Charlottesville uh, I was more thinking about what I need to do as a single mom Um, I'm very active in my community and and civic leadership issues related to what's impacting my local community as it relates to economic empowerment, housing, senior issues, youth issues, public safety, etc. And there's a lot to do even in that. And so um, where there were that, you know, there was already anti-violence groups and, you know, uh, already moving in that direction. I didn't feel a need necessarily to take such a stand, but being a single mom, as much as I'm concerned about what happens to me, you know, if, and then my son not having someone necessarily care for him, more importantly, my son, more importantly, my son needs to see that there are times where you need to take such a risk. You need to stand up. You need to put your name on the line. And sometimes you need to put your life on the line and other people will follow you. And obviously they did. <laughs> Thankfully they did. Thankfully they did. But it was a very real fear. So to, to pull something off like this, obviously you need to have a um, prior t- ties with the community. You need to have a base or a reservoir to pull from in order to get those kind of numbers. How does that work? W- what are some of the other groups or initiatives that you're a part of that allow you to muster these kinds of um, numbers and and how exactly do you go about reaching out to those different constituencies that you have as an activist Uh to bring them to something like this and were there any challenges in in, in that effort? I think what would have normally been a challenge for us was taken away by the severity of what happened in Charlottesville. I think there was a unifying sense of anger and responsibility to respond somehow. Um, I think that was really the catalyst. However, it's a testament to um, what Monica, Didi, and myself do in our community every day. Because you can't 
just say we're hosting this and people follow you into battle, you know, and you're not and you're an unknown. You just that doesn't happen. Um, so one of the encouraging messages that was so humbling but also encouraging was, yes, we'll follow you anywhere because they know of our work fighting um, with, with Monica's group, you know, fighting in regards to the violence in Boston with Didi and Black Lives Matter in regards to making sure that, the, you know, that there's equity in the black diaspora um, and with with my work being multifaceted in a number of issues around economic and just um, opportunity inequalities that are stem from issues around white supremacy, bad policy, etc. Um, so it's something we do every day. And people knew that. And it's obviously a natural extension of the work that you're already doing. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when when it's your if it, when it's your heart's passion and your life's work, you don't have to do a lot of convincing because people see that that's your investment every day. Um, at the event itself, did you address the crowds? Did you give any kind of speech? Um, and if so, what did you say? I did. I did. I uh, I gave um, I gave an address at the kickoff and actually at the park. One of the things that resonated most for me was the need to make sure that this was more than a movement, but an actual movement. Um, we can march and you know we can say we're angry, and it's easy to talk about what we're fighting against, but it's a lot harder to stand for what you're fighting for. Um, what you're fighting for requires that you move forward and that you invest energy and continual energy until something happens. And so we have to, we have to increase the sphere of influence on that work. And for me, it was about making sure that people committed to their areas of interest in fighting the issues of inequality that they see in everyday lives. Because we all can't do it, and the small group, um, comparative to the group that followed us, can't take it on 24-7. It's going to take all of us to be involved in some small way to have a huge impact. So th that is a criticism sometimes of these big demonstrations. It's sort of the other side has a, a term that they like to use called virtue signaling. And... That's to mean that people go out, they pat themselves on the back, they said, I did a good thing today, they're part of a big explosive event like this, and then they go home and then they don't carry that momentum towards substantive action following that photo op kind of moment. Have you felt um, that there has been a carrying of momentum forward in the weeks and months since then? Have you been disappointed? And what, it, what off of that, what specifically would you ask people that attended that event who obviously have some level of allyship with the things that you're uh, advocating for, what would you ask of them? The challenge is, is that we went into this weeks after still interviewing, still talking to people about it. And no, I had not seen an actual increase in that sphere of influence. Um, so the challenge for me, um, and I keep repeating it over and over and over again, is each of us need to find a small way to keep that energy moving um, and start with the thing that's closest to you. Because if you go out and try to reach out for something that you've never worked on, then you're, you're only going to go so far, you're going to burn out. But say, for instance, you're a parent 
what are the inequities happening at your school that are impacting us um, because we know that there's such a high percentage of low-income families that they're not getting the same quality education they're not getting the same um, the same access to um, to advocacy when issues arise etc that's something that you can do if your parent if you're if you're just a local resident and a homeowner how can you make sure that if you're renting, that you're renting equitably to people so that there's access to affordable housing. Those are the things that we can do um, that don't necessarily need a, a new conference, a new event, etc. There's things that we can do every day. And I just, and it doesn't mean it's not happening. I just haven't seen a wave of that effort to be able to know if it was a success or not. Do you think that uh, connection between the oppositional stance towards something like like white supremacy um, is people make that connection in their mind to the smaller everyday work that's for that's 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 um, advocacy for something. Do you, I don't think that there's always a uh, connecting the dots between those things. Do you think that's part of the problem that it's more than saying it's it's not enough to simply say. I'm against racism and white supremacy. I, uh, you need to also say I'm actively invested in improving the lot of uh, marginalized or oppressed peoples. I think that's pr I think that is correct. That it's it's really an issue for our community at large, no matter where you come from, because we don't see the passive racism that happens, right? those comments that, you know, those microaggressions, et cetera, that we don't question, we don't call out, we don't try to provide some type of constructive response to, we just let it roll, not knowing how to respond or not feeling empowered to respond, et cetera. We don't see the everyday action that we can take in small ways to have a big impact. It's very easy for 45,000 people to come together and say, kill the beast. Right. That's easy. But what about the mosquitoes? Right. Right. Um, and coming from a Christian perspective, we're taught in, you know, my tradition is following the Bible. We're taught to, you know, not focus on, you know, not focus on the moat, that splinter in someone's eye, lest you forget the tree, the beam in your own, you know. So um, it's it's tough because it's those small things that we forget we look past or we don't know how to deal with and you put enough of them together and then we have this huge issue uh what how would you characterize or could you give some examples of the subtler forms of racism that people often overlook obviously people walking through charlottesville with tiki torches is a pretty easy one to spot what are some things that you would wish that the maybe let's describe or characterize a person as not as aware, good intentioned, but not as aware and maybe not informed. What are some everyday uh, forms or microaggressions that you might point out? So one of the things, um, actually I was reading an article um, from an author, and forgive me for not remembering her name right off the top, but um, I, I, really, I really associated with this one. Um, she talked about going to, you know, getting ready to go to Harvard. 
and there were some other folks from her school and they were preparing and shipping stuff down and one of them was not a person of color and they were asked where they were going and they said Harvard and they're like oh congratulations and then she comes up and they said where are we shipping this to and she said Harvard and they said the one in Massachusetts right why do we question our achievement when I was in elementary school I went to Medco and as much as I appreciate Medco there's a problem when we have to send our children of color outside of the city lines in order to get a good education right while we're trying to help them and I support Medco I do um, there's we I don't think we realize the message that we're actually instilling in our children to say you can't get quality here we have to send you out to people who don't look like you who you know who don't associate with you who don't have lives like yours in order to give you a better life that that's a message that we have to be very clear on and I was I was part of I was you know I was part of um, a group where my cohorts where I was the only one taking advanced classes and they sat me down. I wasn't even 12 years old. They sat me down and said, you're going to be the only one in advanced classes. How do you feel about that? And here I am, this Afro-Latina, and didn't even quite associate as Latina, I, you know, because it was easier for my parents to hide me as just black. Um, and I didn't know how to respond. I think maybe, I, again, not even 12, I think it was like nine years old. And I was in class, and in this honors class, and the teacher asked who was the first black baseball player, African-American baseball player. And no one in the class knew. And I didn't know because I'm Latina, right? So it wasn't really my thing. And the teacher, being frustrated, looks at me and says, well, why don't you know this? Why is it that I have to carry the banner for every single black person? And I'm supposed to know every achievement. Do we know who the first white baseball player was? A lot of what you're talking about would seem to be part of the uh, objectives, creating access to power, creating equity uh, of Black Lives Matter. You made it clear before the interview that you're in no way affiliated with them. Is there a specific reason for that? Do you agree um, with their movement, uh, in both in terms of objectives, but also in terms of tactics? I don't agree with them. I don't. I, I appreciate their stance. I appreciate the fact that they move in the manner that they feel is necessary for such a time as this. Um, and there are a lot of brilliant people in Black Lives Matter. Um, however, I, I just don't agree with how they move the, the you know, we vary on um, the point of reparations, um, who really matters when we talk about Black Lives Matter as someone who's multicultural, um, who also has um, a father who was a white Spaniard when he was alive. Um, there, there are, there's a schism between what I believe and understanding that even though I am a person of color, my lineage does give me a certain level of privilege that makes me quite aware of the fact that I have to be careful in pointing fingers because to, in some respects I benefit from that. Um, and just being honest about that becomes a problem. But for a, a small moment, you needed to stand in solidarity and really unify around a certain issue. But 
after the fact or before the fact or even during the event itself, what are your efforts to sort of differentiate, draw distinctions? Because ultimately, it's a it's a, a heterogeneous group that's coming together. Right. Um, and I think you probably have to think critically about how you um, draw lines. One of the ways that I did it was to make sure that um, when media reached out to me, I responded because, again, um, while I respect the work of Monica, and, you know, through violence in Boston and Black Lives Matter and feel that there's a place for all of those, we did not agree on every single issue. And, um, and my community does have a certain perception around who I am. Um, and I'd like to stay true to that. You know, the thing that makes me me, the characteristics that make me who I am, that have allowed people to trust me, and, uh, you know, really should stand true and shouldn't be lost because I stood in solidarity with other groups of varying, you know, of varying beliefs. Um, but what we all believed in, as, as I mentioned before, was that that this white supremacy issue is something that we all can address and we need to address together. The other thing that I did was just continue the message that the sphere of influence has to be increased because the more people who have varying views um, on how to address it, but actually agree on address and respond to addressing it means that we'll attack all the various issues that come up. When we were talking about microaggressions, we we're talking about education, we're talking about economic opportunity, when we're talking about housing access, when we're talking about a number of the different areas that are impacted by inequality, we as three different entities, and I believe there was about 20 some odd smaller entities, most of them around BLM, but also some extended groups. Um, we as that small group can't tackle it, all, tackle it all. That's just the reality. As talented as everyone is, we cannot tackle it all. Yeah. It's ultimately a pragmatic decision to come together. Right. The div divide and conquer. Right, yeah. right, right. And so, um, and so yet, we want it to be unified, but you don't want to build a house of cards either, you know, where we, we are not, we're not strong enough to stand. Um, so one of the challenges that we had was actually respecting that separate space um, where there wasn't one owner of this message, you know? Fighting white supremacy doesn't, doesn't belong to one group that has an event. I mean, it just doesn't. That's the reality. And so, therefore, anyone who stands up to fight supremacy can speak for themselves, and it has to be okay. Yeah. So, not to put you on the spot, but can you see a little bit how the similar kind of joining of hands mm -hmm. has to happen on the other side of the barrier inside the gazebo, in that there are people who may have many different viewpoints on certain things mm -hmm. but for them their cardinal issue is free speech mm -hmm. do you see can you recognize that as well as as happening in the people that you were counter protesting that perhaps not all of them are um, racists or nazis or supremacists in fact maybe most of the people that were there are not um, or do you think that once they crossed that barrier and went into the the grandstand that they 
crossed a line, b- both literal and and sort of conceptual, in that they took a stand and said, "This is my priority. I'm not standing against hate." Do you think it has to be binary like that, or do you think that someone can still make the claim that I don't agree with everything that they stand for, but I agree with them about this? Or do you think when your your cohort includes white supremacists potentially that that's a completely different different game? I think we have to look at the impact of what people are saying. If it's really about free speech, we have to look at what the fruit is of their efforts. Um, if it's really about free speech, why was there not a diverse presentation of ideas that addressed an issue? You have to also look at what is the purpose of that free speech. Is it to bring us to a constructive place where we can have greater understanding even if there's disagreement? Or are you allowing a platform for one side to talk about the hate, degradation, and continued mutilation and even killing of one particular group of people? Um, when you don't look at that balance, you are part of the problem. So I think I've been consistent in saying you could say whatever you want, but if you have the right to say what you want, you also have the responsibility of dealing with whomever's going to stand up to hear it. You know, if somebody wants to know if you're a racist and wants to stand up and watch you say it to be sure that's who you are so they know who their enemy is, well, if you believe in what you're saying, what's the, po- what's the problem in us being there to hear it? There has to be some level of shame if your issue is that we're going to be there to see who's speaking against our people or speaking against, not, and when I mean our people, I mean humankind, right? Because for me, being multicultural, it's not about a black or white issue because they're both part of who I am, right? Um, as I mentioned, my father was a white Spaniard. My, my mother was, you know, my mother has, is Latina as, as my father, but they have traits coming back, coming from different areas, right? But it's still, yet and still, being Latino transcends race for me. You know, I'm multicultural. And so what does that mean for me? I have to be concerned about everybody because that's part of who I am. Likewise, we have to be concerned about the world around us because you can't you can't think in a silo you just can't do it so when we're bringing it back when we're bringing it back to this issue i can see where you have a right to free speech but where are you taking the responsibility for where that speech is going for how it's either going to build or destroy and what is the impact on those people it's not okay to come and say, I'm just going to join with a bunch of people who have a right, but I'm going to take no responsibility for what that right actually produces. Speaking of what it produces, things like the signs, um, Nazi flags, Confederate flags, and I think going all the way back to the issue of the Confederate monuments that sort of was the groundwork for the Unite the Right demonstrations that resulted in Heather Heyer's death and all the terrible things that took place in Charlottesville. 
how are those, you know, how is that imagery uh, absorbed and how does that affect communities of color and you're having worked, is it something that's perceived in a very acute way? How do you think people of color, when they see that kind of symbolism, how does it make them feel? I mean, it's varied, right? For some people, depending on, depending on what the actual statue represents, it can be very hard hitting. For others, like myself, I feel like we've missed the mark because we want to fight against the statues, but we don't fight against the, against the statutes that keep us in that position. We want, to, we want to fight against the brass, the bronze, the wood, and iron, but we don't fight the actual policy shackles that keep us bound now. We fight the thing we can see, but we don't band together to fight the thing that keeps us from seeing a brighter future, from seeing economic mobility, that from seeing opportunity. That's the bigger fight. Do you think that's why these types of things galvanize people so much that it's an easy target? It's a distillation of things that otherwise are kind of hard to pin down? It, 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 just I think question. that's a fair argument to say that, you know, that that's the easier fight. These fights are not easy, but I believe that a lot of people hope in if we start somewhere that that energy, that momentum will continue and will get there to the place that actually breaks up these issues and breaks up the foundation of inequality um, and prejudice and hatred that continues to permeate, um, you know, permeate us as a nation and as a people. However, again, without that continued focus on increasing that sphere of influence on really keeping that momentum going, we end up throwing a few stones at Goliath and running away instead of finding that one pebble to hit square in the forehead. Great metaphors, by the way. Um, I think uh, one thing that strikes me about you is that you are, uh, you have your eye on the prize um, I don't think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors with a lot of these things. And I do think sometimes you lose track of the real issue and you have your finger on the pulse. Also, you're an, a, 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 not only are you an activist um, and an organizer, but you are sort of moving towards a political career. Am, am I correct to say that? Yes, that is correct. So putting yourself in, you know, imagining yourself in a position of power Policy-wise, what are some things? And let's just start here because, you know, think local, right? In Boston, what are things that you would push for as a, as a leader of this city um, that would address these, the system of inequality that, that, that you uh, take issue with? One of the things that I would address in politics or in a pol- from a policy perspective is working locally with the state on things like promoting the, the legislation for tenants to have the first right of refusal um, when property is being sold. We really need to empower those who live there to have a chance to actually buy that property. Um, I think that a number of the affordable, affordable parcels that are coming up are not really affordable to the everyday person, considering that we're in a district where 
at, at all the zip codes, there's only one zip code where our residents have not maxed out their earning potential at the age of 45. So we really need to look at locality pay. We need to look at how we're, how we're pushing ordinances um, and, and hopefully subsequent state legislation to push for higher wages, to push for you know, benefits that actually allow us to have a benefit to working. Um, so people can survive the work that they do every day. We have, you know, we're in a national crisis where across the nation, people cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment. And yet in Boston, we're in the third, and we bounce between the third and the fourth highest rental market in the nation. How much more impactful is that issue for us? Especially when the housing stock for a number of other major cities like ours um, meets, meets the need at about 87%, and we haven't even hit 70% of housing stock that actually meets the needs of the actual housing composition of households that we know exist. So if we, could, if we can build it, we can't access it. And the stock that's accessible is not actually accessible to us the everyday person that's living and working two and three jobs to survive in this area. So those are some of the things that I would work on. I um, mean, I think that's really what pushed me into this because I'm not a politician. I am someone who understands that the political process needs to start working for the people and we need to stop with these games and crumbs that we are feeding to our community and saying, oh, look, we negotiated with these businesses to bring million dollars to a park, but we are replacing those millions of dollars with a 26-story tower in the middle of Roxbury that has rents of two to $5,000 for micro units in an area where the median income is between thirty-two dollars and $35,000. Who are we building this for? We are in an area where we have a city council at-large candidate who's running around in a clown costume to make a point of the games that we've actually created through our own political process. And he's right. One of the issues is, is that we, had, we just finished a preliminary where 75% of our voters chose anybody else besides the front runner, the proposed front runner. And instead of being aware of that, we had a local newspaper try to make it seem like it was a big win. There was no runaway win. 75% of the or nearly the lowest voter turnout we've had chose anyone else besides the, besides the leading vote getter. That doesn't say anything to you? And yet, we want to claim that we have success. But we're not listening to the fact that out of 43,000 registered voters, we had 4,000 turnout for a preliminary. Yeah. We have failed our people. As, and, and I'm included in that. That was a hard thing for me to learn. We failed. Collectively, we failed in getting the public to believe in the system and be part of the process and actually pick a leader.
do you ever worry once you're if, if your political career skyrockets right and suddenly you're in a position where you have to make more of those tough choices obviously the higher you get up in a in any political career you have more i guess competing uh constituencies to to accommodate and would you ever worry about losing your sense of authenticity and losing your focus on the issues that matter? And, and would, do you ever worry about those being compromised? That the sort of voice and clarity and um, honesty that you can have as an activist and that you clearly do, do you think, can you imagine yourself losing that? Is that ever something that, you, that causes you to toss and turn at night? You know, the re- I am concerned about that, but my concern is the reason why I'm not worried. I'm so concerned with the integrity that I have to uphold that my prayer is, is that I can activate enough people who are sick and tired of being sick and tired to be that self-advocating voice, to allow me that base and that strength to stay the course on the issues, to stay the course on what's true and what's real. Because the part that we miss in our community is that we look for the city council, we look for the state rep, we look for the mayor to do the work for us. But the work starts with the people. We could have a hearing, but if nobody comes to be heard, we have an issue. If nobody comes to vote, then people who are set up by special interests can continue in their special interests. But if we can convince the community to have faith in the power of their vote and to actually put people in who really care about their issues, who have come up through that garden of inequity and have pushed through those weeds just like they did and can actually help to build policy that works for our people first, then you won't have to worry about those competing interests because you'll have that army of voices behind you to say, heck no, we won't go, <laughs> you know? So that's my hope. My hope is, is that I won't come into that issue because we would have galvanized the community to start being self-advocating and to actually back me up and say, yes, this is what we want. Yes, we understand our power and we're willing to wield it. After the interview, as Angie rushed off to teach fourth graders at her church, I left with the sense that all of this, the free speech rally, the Oath Keepers, Antifa, their public skirmishes, the slogans, the Confederate flags and monuments, all of it was a distraction from the real work that needs to be done. Returning to the YouTube videos that opened this episode, I am struck again by how little substance there is behind the intense theatrics of the exchange. The two sides are swept up in the choreography and pageantry of symbolism, fighting specters of their true enemy, shadow boxing while the real opponents wait in their corners, growing stronger, yet more estranged. There is something sort of juvenile about the extremes of the political spectrum, their masks, helmets, chants, and intimidation tactics. Is this the battlefield where the next culture war will be waged? Or will it shift to the true corridors of power? Law offices, Senate chambers, courtrooms, fundraisers, and ballot boxes. When the political conversation becomes solely about the right to free speech, rather than the content of the speech itself, it begins to slip into a realm without any bearings, without any good faith. 
it's both easier and less productive to argue about rights than to argue about issues. Easier to take cover in ideology and abstraction, harder to hear the difficult truths. There's another clash approaching in Boston. On Saturday, November 18th, Fight Supremacy 2.0 will descend on the Boston Commons once again, this time to counter-protest an event called the Rally for the Republic. That group was denied a permit by the city of Boston, but according to its spokespeople, one of which is our friend John Medlar, plans to gather anyway. Speakers this time will include Joey Gibson, Tammy Lee, and once again, Kyle Chapman, the based stickman. I'm sure there are many in and around my city that are gearing up for the second round of the fight. I waited to share these interviews until I felt it was a time when they might make the greatest impact. To potentially provide pause before or after the emotional fallout that we can expect from Saturday's rallies. If you've listened this far, I would hope that before, during, or after the event, you might reflect on the motives and aspirations of whatever people you encounter on the other side. To realize that they may take a stand amongst a group that you oppose, but that moment of solidarity should not necessarily define them. Their priorities can shift, and perhaps there is a way that you can accelerate that process. On the flip side, perhaps they have viewpoints and experiences that you have not yet considered. I guess I'm saying be open. Don't jump to conclusions. But also, if the time comes, be clear, honest, and decisive if you witness something hateful or abhorrent. But also, after the event, it's important to consider what steps you can take moving forward. Angie Camacho told me that she had distanced herself from Fight Supremacy 2.0, that she felt it was putting energy into the wrong places, and she asked me to read this statement. When we, as female leaders of color, stepped up to lead back in August, it was to address a very relevant threat. We had to face supremacist views that threatened to spearhead a national movement on the heels of Charlottesville at the cost of innocent lives. We had to stand as a community largely targeted by such structural and long-standing focus on disestablishmentarianism. We had to be brave enough to face the attack on the black and immigrant communities to say, in solidarity, that hate cannot live here. However, as leaders, we also had a responsibility to turn that prolific moment into a movement, but we did not take the opportunity to do so. From the last rally to now, we had not expanded beyond the core sphere of influence to initiate the building of a foundation on which the ideals that brought over 40,000 people could stand. While I respect the work of my sister colleagues, I do not feel it appropriate to rally again under these circumstances. We stated our message successfully, but now is the time to host constructive community conversations to develop critical change. And that message was once again from Angie Camacho leading up to the Fight Supremacy 2.0 march this weekend. For myself, I plan to continue to think about the ways in which my speech and attitudes can affect oppressed peoples, while remaining cognizant of how I can use my freedom of speech for good in this world. And I also plan to reach out to Angie Camacho about how I can make a meaningful difference by volunteering in my city. Since this is the first podcast, I thought we would talk a little bit about 
the types of episodes you can expect going forward. I have some plans to address some specific lifestyles, lifestyle choices, belief systems, um, ways of living and experiencing the world. I plan to talk to an individual who identifies as polyamorous. I have a show planned where we will discuss using virtual reality to transition prisoners before they reintegrate into society. And I also plan to talk to an elderly fellow about what it means to be at the twilight stage of his life. So we may not return to politics for a while, but I hope that you're able to draw some inspiration or some clarity from the interviews that you heard today. I'd also like to give a couple thank yous to people who made this episode possible. First of all, I'd like to thank Steve, who generously provided some music tracks that you heard throughout the episode. I'd also like to thank Tyler Ebling and Natalia Rehm for facilitating the interviews that you heard in this episode. Follow our Media Harmonics Facebook page or subscribe to us on iTunes to stay tuned for future episodes. And if you feel so inclined and you enjoyed this episode, give us a review. It always helps increase the visibility of the show on the iTunes podcast store. Until next time, I'm your host, Dave Walker, and this is Empathy Reboot.